1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Right now, Ian Milheiser, our old buddy, he is now a senior correspondent at Vox, and he's the author of the book Injustices, the court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. But he wrote a brilliant piece that you can find at Vox.com. It's titled, Can We Remove Justice Kavanaugh Without Impeachment? His Twitter handle, by the way, is I Milheiser, M-I-L-L-H-I-S-E-R. Ian, welcome back to the program. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ian. Nice talking with you. So how might we be able to get Justice Kavanaugh, I refer to him as Justice Beerbong Weenie Waver, off the Supreme Court without going through the United States Senate in an impeachment hearing, or for that matter, the House. I mean, it would have to start there. Yeah.
3: So, I mean, the short
4: answer is it's a heavy lift, and it rests on a legal theory that is untested, but, you know, as I was reading the article laying this out, it seems surprisingly plausible. So there are two law professors, conservative law professors, actually, who wrote an article several years back, way before anyone knew who Christine Blasey Ford was which argued that, if you read the Constitution, it says that judges shall serve during good behavior. Right. And That's right there in Article 3. That term, right. It's right there in Article 3. And their argument is that that term, during good behavior, does not mean unless they're impeached. What it means, they claim, is that a judge can be removed through a judicial process. And that could be, you know, if they're convicted of certain crimes, it's automatic. It could be if they're shown that, like, they just don't show up to work. There could conceivably be a judicial process that removes them. But, like, the idea is that impeachment isn't the only way. It could also be done through a judicial process. And so their argument is that Congress, and this is the sort of thing that really could only happen if Democrats have an extraordinarily strong year in 2020, could pass a law. It could say, for example, that if a federal judge is convicted of perjury, then they are automatically stripped of their judicial office. And then the question would be, could the Justice Department obtain a conviction against a particular judge, you know, in order to trigger the statute?
2: And this is based so, on the assumption that when Kavanaugh protested his innocence before the United States Senate, he was lying, that he committed perjury.
4: Right. And, you know, the standard for perjury is very high. So, you know, I, I don't want to leave your listeners I think this would be an easy thing to do. I, I mean, there are a lot of untested questions here. It's based on, you know, again, this article, which lays out some pretty compelling evidence. I mean, the, the most compelling evidence that they lay out is in 1790. So we're talking about the first Congress, the one that had James Madison in it, passed a law saying that judges who are convicted of bribery are automatically disqualified from ever holding federal office again. And so the argument is that if the first Congress, you know, many of the people who were in the first Congress actually wrote the Constitution, thought that it was okay to say that upon a conviction a judge is automatically removed, then it follows that, like, you know, maybe they were onto something, they knew something about the Constitution, and so another Congress could do something similar in the future. Is that law still yeah. on the books? I don't believe it is. I mean, I I would actually have to go back and look at it. But the the federal criminal law has been rewritten many times since 1790. Sure.
2: It's a fascinating theory. And, and, you know, applying things to federal judges is certainly within the purview of Congress. I mean, you know, Article 3, Section 2 is pretty clear about that, which would include the Supreme Court. I think it's fascinating. Have you gotten any feedback from any uh, constitutional scholars on their thoughts on the viability of this?
4: I've gotten a little bit of feedback. I mean, the thing about it is, like, there's really two questions here. I mean, the first question, and I think it's a hard one, is, like, yes, there's, like, this strong argument that in 1790 this is what people believed. But, like, do we really want to say that... 200 years of uncontested practice should be thrown out the window because some clever law professors, you know, dig up some historical documents. And most of the time, I think the answer to that question should be no. I mean, like, you know, you've got some very dangerous people in the Supreme Court who think that the answer to that question should always be yes. And that's how you wind up with things like, you know, child labor laws getting struck down. So I think that we should tend to be cautious of those arguments. That's the one hard question. And then the second hard question, probably the, you know, the hardest question, is would the judiciary let this happen? You know, Do federal judges who ultimately would rule on the constitutionality of something, do they want to like, make themselves more vulnerable in this way?
2: In other words, would uh, the Supreme Court strike this down I, as being unconstitutional? Exactly. Yeah.
4: And I mean, I could see I could see a circumstance where the Supreme Court might think that this would be a good idea. And that would be if Kavanaugh, you know, if a member of the Supreme Court, were actually convicted of a crime and was sent to prison. I could see the federal court say, you know, yeah. like the spectacle of having this guy rule on cases while he is incarcerated is like more than i think well this, his, historically
2: you know, having yeah. judges who've been convicted of crimes and i know there, there have been a number of them just in the last decade or so you know mostly at the state level maybe a few at the federal level basically they always resign it seems
4: yeah most of the time they have the decency to resign when they don't have the decency to resign they're frequently
3: impeached
4: and they're mm-hmm. removed that way so yeah, yeah typically it's not an issue because yeah. you know a judge who is behind bars like typically doesn't remain a judge very long so maybe they should go after
2: kavanaugh anyway for perjury even if there's not a law saying that he has to be removed from office and just shame him into resigning i I mean it's possible now i mean the question like even assuming and again it's a really high bar to
4: get a perjury conviction but even assuming that you could get that conviction you know the issue here is that this isn't just about brett kavanaugh it's about The swing seat on the Supreme Court. And, you know, is Brett Kavanaugh, who has spent his entire career as a Republican partisan, going to give up his seat if a Democrat is in the White House, knowing it would flip the Supreme Court? You know, or for that matter, are Republican senators going to vote to convict him in an impeachment process, no matter what the evidence says? when they know that the consequence could be a Democratic majority on the Supreme
2: Court. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff and, and ripe for speculation. And I would certainly love to see Justice Beerbong-Weenie Waiver out, but, you know, time will tell. Ian Milheiser, I always appreciate your thoughtful perspective on these things, and thank you for dropping by today. All right, thank you. Great talking with you. Ian Millhiser, he's a senior correspondent over at Vox. His most recent book, is the Supreme Court History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There's a bunch of stuff in the news, and let me just run through some of these things. The crisis with birds, the climate strike is happening. People all over the country are walking out. Students started this, but it's going right across the, the board. And now this report from Science, or uh, published in Science Magazine, the New York Times did a, a, a long piece on it, uh, which is absolutely brilliant. And then there's an op-ed today in the New York Times, you know, an opinion piece, an editorial from the uh, editorial board. Nearly one-third, they write, nearly one-third of the wild birds in the United States and Canada have vanished since 1970. A staggering loss. This is 2.9 billion birds gone over the last 50 years a quarter of all Blue Jays, almost half of all Baltimore Orioles. I haven't seen an Oriole in years. Frankly, I haven't seen a Blue Jay in years. I see Scrub Jays, which are like really dusty kind of gray blue Blue Jays. They live in bushes near the ground, but they're not Blue Jay Blue Jays. Blue Jays live in trees and they're bright blue. Haven't seen any of those in a long time. A study in Germany found that the midsummer decline of 82% of the, in the biomass of flying insects over the past 25 years, 40% of the world's amphibians are in danger of extinction. Stocks of bluefin tuna are down to the last 3% of their historic populations. That is, 97% of them are gone. According to the United Nations this year, a million animal and plant species face extinction. That's more than ever before in human history. So grim stuff and a good, another good reason why the climate march is so important. Obviously much of this loss of birds has to do with the loss of insects, which has to do with the overuse of pesticides, particularly neonicotinoids, and with uh, people letting cats go free. One cat will clear all the small birds and the ground-living birds within a square mile, within a year. One feral cat or one outdoor cat. If you've got a cat, don't let it outside. But that's just a, you know a small piece of it. Mostly it's habitat loss. It's, you know, we're turning wild spaces into city spaces at you know just a mind-boggling pace. I mean, we've added a billion people just in the last 15 years. Another piece in the news here, the Trump administration, this is bizarre. This is Betsy DeVos. The Department of Education has notified Duke University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They both have a program that is titled Middle East Studies, And both these universities get federal funding, broadly speaking, and uh, Betsy DeVos says that because these programs do not, quote, advance the national security interests and economic stability of the United States, end quote, and because the program has emphasis on the positive aspects of Islam, end quote, that the federal government is going to pull their money. Since when did it become the job of a university to, quote, advance the national security interests and economic stability of the United States? When did that happen? And how does a Middle Eastern studies program not do that? How does it not help us if our students, if our young people understand how people in other countries think? Speaking of students, two and three members of the class of 2018 graduated a little deeper in depth than the classes before them. This is from USA Today, Chris Quintana. Last year's graduates with a bachelor's degree averaged $29,200 in student loan debt, a 2% increase from the year before. We now have $1.6 trillion in student loan debt in the United States, a problem that does not exist in Canada, does not exist in any European country, does not exist in Mexico, definitely does not exist in Costa Rica, where college is free and healthcare is. Yeah, I mean, this is just like... We're the only country in the world that has obscenely high pharmaceutical prices, literally the only country where prescription drug manufacturers can write their own ticket and the federal government can't even negotiate with them. Another thing that Moscow Mitch knocked down. And we're the only country in the world where students graduate with debt equal to, you know, more than the down payment on a house, which is why they're not buying houses. This is crazy. And, you know, again, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have plans to do something about this, and I can't wait. Whether it's aches and pains or wanting to sleep better or just thinking that, you know, it's a good idea to take things that are anti-inflammatory, inflammation just ravages our bodies new leaf natural cbd oil does it as does i mean you know it's cbd and this is what cbd does but this is the best form cbd oil doesn't get you high it's not intoxicating You get the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. It's non-toxic, it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. It's so non-toxic you can give it to your pets. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, it's highly concentrated, it contains no additional additives. It's grown right here in the USA and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to NewLeafNaturals.com. That's nu Save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NewLeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. Benny Gantz, who is the uh, former, he, this guy, he, this is Netanyahu's main opponent in the election in Israel. Uh, he's 60 years old. He's the leader of the Blue and White Party, which is an opposition party to uh, Likud, to Benjamin Netanyahu's party, and also is a more progressive party than Likud. Likud is like the Republicans and blue and white, sort of like the Democrats, I suppose, in Israel. They still have only counted 98% of the votes. So the official, here's 100 percent, and this is because in Israel, they refuse to allow electronic voting machines. You vote on paper. (laughs) I mean, the Israelis are not fools, right? As is true of all the European countries, as is true of Canada, as is true of Mexico. I mean, you you name the country, right? They vote on paper, except for us. We're the village idiots here. Netanyahu tried to reach out to Gantz and say, hey, let's have a coalition government. I'll be in charge of it. You'll be number two and everything will be good. And Gantz said, no, you forgot. I campaigned on saying that I would not be part of a Netanyahu government, period. So pound sand, buddy. So we'll see where this goes, right? Keep an eye on this. I think it's interesting because, you know, I mean, Israel's our closest ally in the Middle East, at least historically, I mean, it may well be now, with Donald Trump in the White House, that Saudi Arabia, which owns the 45th floor of Trump Tower in New York City, yes, they do. They bought it in 2001. Huh. Funny about that. What else happened in 2001? Anyhow, the Saudis, you know, I think basically, in my opinion, own Donald Trump. So, you know, there's some speculation that this was a conversation with the of kuwait maybe on behalf of MBS, or maybe it was just with MBS himself, and we don't know know that he actually had that conversation. But what's interesting is that after this attack on the Saudi oil fields, Trump and Pompeo are out there going, oh, it's Iran, it's an act of war, it's But Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, says, uh, we need to establish the facts of what happened. In other words, uh, hold on, guys. Chill out. France, Mechon, he says, uh, we, uh, he reaffirms the engagement of France for the security and stability of the region, which is basically saying nothing. Uh, Heiko Maas, the foreign minister for Germany, said, we're worried about the danger of the situation escalating further. And President Putin of Russia, This from a piece in today's Washington Post, quote, offered little sympathy, telling an audience that included Iranian President Hassan Rouhani that Saudi Arabia should purchase a Russian-made missile defense system. Putin joked at the event uh, in Turkey, quote, they will reliably protect all infrastructure objects in Saudi Arabia. So what might this be? By the way, there's a couple of other things I just want to quickly uh, share with you and then I'll pick up your phone calls. I know that we've got a bunch of people on hold and I want to get right to you, but um, Fox News just did some polling in the uh, Democratic prime, well in the in the, this is general election polling. The question, if the 2020 presidential election were held today, how would you vote if the candidates were Democrat Joe Biden or Republican Donald Trump or and then you know fill in the blank, Elizabeth Warren and Trump, Kamala Harris and Trump, Bernie Sanders and Trump. And here's here's how it shakes out. Uh, Kamala Harris beats Trump 42 to 40. Elizabeth Warren beats Trump 46 to 40. Bernie Sanders beats Trump 48 to 40. And Joe Biden beats Trump 52 to 38. In other words, all four of the top tier Democratic candidates beat Donald Trump. Uh, and, And this is a Fox News poll, right? I mean, there's some other polls as well that have similar information. But the real shocker is a new poll out of NBC News and the Wall Street Journal. And there's a piece about this in the Washington Post. Well, I'll just read the first sentence. A new poll out of NBC News and the Wall Street Journal contains a shocking result. Only 9% of Democratic primary voters say they've made up their mind about whom they're going to vote for. 9%. Wow. Mike and Elmira... How do you say that in ohio i have it as e-l-y-r-i-a but that doesn't sound right it's elyria but yeah no one gets it right oh elyria and america oh, okay. should yeah yeah okay i got it so what's up yeah, I, well i keep remembering the corporation are you familiar with that movie i'm sure yeah it's been a few years It's an hour and 35 minutes into it naomi klein
5: quotes that the next president will be a marketer and she was clairvoyant i guess so just Wow. When you see her, well, just run that through. Yeah, you look yeah. look at it
2: again. Say, hour and 35, an hour and 35 minutes, somewhere, somewhere the on that Okay, I'll check it out. Yeah. Mike, thanks a lot yeah. for the call. And just, just apropos of that, what he's talking about is I mentioned that next Wednesday here in Portland, actually in Beaverton, uh, suburban Portland, Naomi Klein and I will be doing, a, we'll be engaged in a 20, 30-minute conversation on stage. And then she's going to do a little song and dance about her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. That'll be at 7 p.m. at Powell's Books in Beaverton. And then I'll be in Chicago on October 3rd at 6 p.m. at Smart 265 in Carroll Stream. You can get more information on that at WCPT820.com. And I'll also, on October 10th, be in Portland at Powell's City of Books on Burnside, the main Powell's. All of that, by the way, is over at TomHartman.com if you want more information. Marion in South Beach, Oregon. Hey, Marion, what's up?
1: Thanks for taking my call, Tom. This is the first time I called in, but we're facing so many different ailments from clearly global climate change and uh, toxic chemicals and deforestation and so on and so on, and at the root of all that is an economy that we've uh, built basically on growth. Our CEOs for any big corporation are mandated to increase the wealth for their stakeholders. And that speaks to Wall Street. But Wall Street basically is a construct for the wealthy. It's a gambling institution for the wealthy, in my opinion. As uh, clearly, a waitress or a construction worker or nobody, anybody in that environment wouldn't have the means to really invest. Right. So, my question is: What if we had a big paradigm shift in thinking and a mandate that all the corporation CEOs, their salaries, their bonuses? would depend on products that are safe, sustainable, and durable. Do away with Wall Street and return to the original retirement plans that many of us enjoyed way back when, 20 years ago, yeah. and basically mandate that the CEOs have to perform on that level. I get what you're rate.
2: saying and where your outrage is, Marian, but the purpose of public stock exchanges is is not for the gambling and and even really for the investing it's to raise money for a corporation that's you know that's going public it's a way of of raising money for a corporation you're not that you know that's not going to happen they're not going to go away i think that we need to regulate them much more aggressively i'm with you on that and if you want to go back to reasonable ceo salaries the only reason ceo salaries exploded in the 1980s Prior to Reagan, they were at uh, 30, at the maximum, 30 times what workers made. Now it can be over 10,000 times what workers make. The only reason is because Reagan dropped the top tax rate, Uh, you know, uh, LBJ had dropped it from 91% to 74%, so it was still above 50%, but Reagan dropped it from 74% all the way down to 25%, and that produced this explosion in pay at the top end of the pay scale, Uh, and of course that money had to come from somewhere, so it came from the bottom end of the pay scale. So if you want to accomplish what you're talking about, the best best way to do it is to roll back the Reagan tax cuts. Marion, thank you for the call. Okay, welcome back. So, Mike from uh, Cal, from uh, Lomita, California thinks that uh, Was just weighing in and saying well you know i think it's entirely possible that this was right after the iranians shot down a u.s drone and that it might have been Mohammed bin salman it might have been you know the dictator of saudi arabia mr bonesaw and trump might have been saying you know if if you can get attacked by iran we'll come to your defense and i was speculating you know i looked at the map of the oil facility that got bombed and it looks to me like all of, maybe not all, but it's, it sure looked like all of the spots where the missiles hit were storage facilities. They were storage tanks. And you would think if you were going to take out an oil refining facility that you'd go after the actual refinery, you know, which has all this delicate tubing and fancy equipment, and, and it's very expensive to replace and rebuild, whereas you know, replacing or rebuilding a storage tank is no big deal. But it was the storage tanks that got taken out, which, you know, feeds speculation that maybe Saudi Arabia was attacked by Saudi Arabia to provide a pretense for a war with Iran. I mean, if they were doing that, they would be doing exactly what Lyndon Johnson did to get us into the Vietnam War with the Gulf of Tonkin, or exactly what was it McKinley, I think? Well, really, it was William Randolph Hearst, the publisher of the yellow newspapers back in the day who wrote a letter to Frederick Remington, as I recall, saying, you get me the pictures, I'll get you the war. In other words, he needed a picture of something to provoke the Spanish-American War. And they said, oh, you know, they attacked the USS Maine. Well, the USS Maine apparently went down because its boiler blew up. It was a steamship. And boilers blew up all the time. But In any case, you know, we've had two wars that we know of that were started by false flag operations. Of course, the the 9-11 truthers all are convinced that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars were caused by a false flag operation. I don't endorse that perspective, but, you know, that would make three. So why wouldn't another country do the same thing? Who knows? Anyhow, that's interesting food for thought. Len in Woodmere, New York. Hey, Len, what's on your mind today?
5: Well, you know, every day you wonder what it's going to take. I'm just hoping this strategy that Pelosi has to slow walk any impeachment actually have it occur while the campaigning is going on next year. You just keep adding up everything between the stops in Scotland, torturing children at the border, obstructing justice, lying and disseminating information, emoluments, environmental attacks. I mean, if this guy doesn't get impeached, what justification is there for it to be in the Constitution?
2: Amen. You're singing to the choir, Len. I completely agree with you. I know. And I think probably the most effective thing you could do right now to help make that happen would be to call the Speaker of the House of Representatives Nancy Pelosi's office and share your opinion with her. As Speaker, she doesn't just represent San Francisco, she represents all of us. That's Uh, a very good idea. Until she gets on board with this thing, it ain't happening. But thanks a lot for the call, Len. our book club today we're reading from a book by elizabeth holtzman one of the former u.s congresswomen who sat on the committee that considered impeaching richard nixon this book is titled the case for impeaching trump just came out this is from the first chapter titled impeachment when donald trump's presidential election victory was announced in the early morning hours of november 9 2016 like many americans i rubbed my eyes in disbelief and dismay two questions raced through my mind what had become of america that a man so unfit, so small-minded, so mean-spirited could be elected? A man whose ethnic and racial bigotry had set the stage for his presidential run when he called Mexicans rapists and made racist birther attacks on President Barack Obama? whose vulgarity and misogyny were laid bare in the Access Hollywood tape when he bragged about forcibly grabbing women by their genitals, whose performance at presidential debates showed him not only flagrantly ill-informed, but manifestly unwilling to get informed? My second question was about how much harm this man would do to America as its 45th president. I have my answer now to the latter, less than two years after the election. President Trump has damaged American democracy far more than I would have guessed. He has refused to protect our system of free elections from foreign interference. He has relentlessly attacked the administration of justice, in particular the investigation into a possible conspiracy with Russia regarding the 2016 presidential election, putting himself above the rule of law. He has failed to separate his personal business from the countries flouting the Constitution's requirements. And he has violated the constitutional rights of the people In separating children from parents at the southwest border without due process of law and to cover up these misdeeds he has systematically lied to and assailed the press these are great and dangerous offenses that the framers of our constitution wanted to counteract and thwart they provided a powerful remedy impeachment many tremble at the word fearing how president trump's supporters will react to an impeachment inquiry Worrying that it will only further polarize an already deeply divided nation or that there will not be enough votes in the Senate to convict him if the House of Representatives votes to impeach. Just calling for an inquiry will be viewed as a Democratic Party attack on the head of another party, a kind of coup d'etat. It's easy to find reasons to be anxious, but I'm not afraid. As a junior congresswoman, the youngest ever elected at that time, I served on the House Judiciary Committee that voted to impeach President Richard Nixon for the high crimes and misdemeanors he committed in connection with the Watergate cover-up and other matters. Through thorough, fair, and above all, bipartisan, the committee acted on solid evidence presented in televised hearings that riveted the nation, handing us the blueprint for how impeachment can be successfully pursued today. In our 225 years of constitutional democracy, the Nixon impeachment process has been proven to be the only presidential effort that worked. Though Nixon resigned, the only president ever to do so, two weeks after the committee's impeachment vote, he did so to avoid the certainty of being impeached and removed from office. We became a better nation for having held the president accountable. All of which raises two further questions. Should we be considering the impeachment of President Donald J. Trump? Will we again become a better nation by pursuing that option? To answer, we need to set aside President Trump's unremitting attacks on the environment on our close allies, on the Affordable Care Act, and any disagreements we have over policy, as well as any personal animus, and simply ascertain whether he is engaged in the kind of egregious conduct that would meet the constitutional standards for impeachment and removal from office. This means we have to focus sharply on his potentially impeachable offenses. In doing so, we will find it useful to compare them, when possible, to similar offenses by President Nixon found to be impeachable by the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. Here is a list of some of President Trump's potentially impeachable offenses, developed as of this writing. A possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice and an abuse of power. On May 9, 2017, Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, who is investigating both his national security Advisor Michael Flynn, and Russia's connections to the Trump campaign in connection with influencing the 2016 presidential election. Two days later, President Trump admitted to NBC's Lester Holt that Comey's firing had to do with that, quote, Russia thing. In other words, President Trump acknowledged that he was trying to shut down the FBI investigation into his own possible conspiracy with Russia. Flynn has since pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. The Comey firing uncannily echoes Nixon's firing of the special Watergate prosecutor for seeking highly damaging information about that president, A brazen defiance of the rule of law that triggered the start of impeachment proceedings against Nixon. A second possible interference with or obstruction of the administration of justice and an abuse of power. President Trump has persistently and publicly attacked those heading the Russia investigation, including Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, and has repeatedly condemned Attorney General Jeff Sessions for recusing himself, suggesting that he wants to fire any and all of them, in order to get control of the Russian investigation. He actually did give an order to fire Mueller. A failure to care that the laws are faithfully executed is required by the Constitution. To try to deflect public concern about his possible role, well, it continues from there. The case for impeaching Trump by Elizabeth Holtzman.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's one 888 O gold So we've got this watchdog thing, the, the greedy, greedy, greedy. My, you know, my whole life, I've been greedy, greedy, greedy. I've grabbed all the money I could get. I am so greedy. That's Donald Trump, January 28, 2016, campaigning for president, confessing how greedy he is. Ron Wyden sent this note to me. He has put out the Heightened Oversight of Travel, Eating, and Lodging Act, the Hotel Act, which he says, quote, will stop the Trump administration from spending taxpayer dollars at businesses owned by the president or members of his family. So Senator Wyden, one of our two senators here from Oregon, trying to get this passed. Meanwhile, we've got, this is The Guardian is reporting, 51 senators, there's 100 altogether, 51 senators and their spouses have as much as $96 million personally invested in corporate stocks in five key sectors, communications, electronics, defense, energy, natural resources, finance, insurance, and real estate, and health. Overall, the senators are invested in 338 companies. This is crazy. Joe Manchin owns between one and five million worth of stock in his family coal business, Energy System, making him the only Democratic senator who is profiting directly from the environmentally devastating coal business. Shelley Moore Caputo, Microsoft, Intel, AT and T, and Verizon. Senator Jackie Rosen, Amazon, AT and T, and Adobe. Senators up to nine and a half million in United Health Group, Anthem, Abbott Labs, Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, CVS. 15 senators on stock in Apple and Microsoft. This is nuts. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has bought the entire 45th floor of the Trump Tower as Donald Trump is lavishing them with praise. And Elizabeth Warren has introduced, has suggested we should do something about all of these things. Nancy Pelosi has introduced a Medicare drug plan. Donald Trump has been talking about, oh, we're going to lower the cost of prescription drugs in his rallies and his tweets. Yeah, Pelosi's actually doing it, which is, I think, a really good thing. The Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, it's called S I G A R, SIGAR. Cigar. The Special Inspector General, this is John Sopko, his press office sent out this remarkable you know, as a member of the press, I'm on this military mailing list. It's about what's going on in Afghanistan and whether or not we could put Afghanistan back together. I'll just read to you from the release. The reintegration of former fighters, they're talking about Taliban, bringing the Taliban back into Afghan society. The reintegration of former fighters will be necessary for sustainable peace and one of the most pressing challenges facing Afghan society, the government and the economy. If the Afghan government, and the Taliban reach a peace agreement, an estimated 60,000 full-time Taliban fighters and 90,000 seasonal fighters may seek to return to civilian life. But the current environment of ongoing conflict in Afghanistan is not conducive to a successful reintegration program. Even today, they note the U.S. has no lead agency or office for issues concerning the reintegration of ex-combatants. The Trump administration is apparently dropping the ball again. Prior reintegration programs they note did not succeed in fracturing or weakening the Taliban to any substantial degree and no firm evidence exists that the programs pressure Taliban leadership to pursue peace negotiations. Uh, Inspector General Sopko in his remarks says, and these are actual quotes from the general, A failure to reintegrate combatants of all stripes into Afghan society will only lead to the continuation of a 40-year cycle of war that has led to generations of Afghans growing up knowing only death and destruction. And for Afghanistan's supporters, the continuation of the sacrifice of blood and treasure in a distant land. Wow, that's a sobering assessment. It's a genuinely sobering assessment. Okay, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. If you just tuned in recently, who is Donald Trump committing treason with and why? Chris in Stuyvesant, New York. Hey, Chris, you wanted to weigh in on who you think Trump is committing treason with.
3: Yes, sir. We, we talked about I think it was probably back in August when we first had the first fiasco with the attack on the oil tankers.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: And
3: I think you and I were pretty much in agreement that the greatest purveyors or the so-said greatest purveyors of terror in the world the Iranians, which I think you and I are in agreement is a canard. The Saudis, if anything, but they didn't drop one drop of oil into the Gulf, which on a green level, praise that for whoever's had the power over that. No one lost their life, no tanker sank, and no money was lost. Gee, isn't that odd? Hmm. Where are we at now? We're at a pump station that was hit. It only provides 5% of the world energy or whatever what Trump is calling it, even though he claims we're energy independent. And yet we we're going to be back, uh, I think it's going to be more than a week. They're saying two weeks till they're back on, but I'm with you. They the, the hit tanks. If, these were, if this was some great mastermind terrorism operation, wouldn't you take out the actual mechanics of this thing? And even if they did, which they didn't, and, and again, I'll go back with what was said a few days before. Look at the distance from where these things come and, and, and the technology that we're at with drones or missiles. I don't buy any of it, but aren't we energy independent? Why do we care?
2: Yeah, I'm with you, Chris. We... We do not have a mutual defense agreement with saudi arabia and their problems are not our problems uh, broadly speaking i mean they might have been in the past when we were importing 10 20 percent of our oil from there we are not anymore so uh hmm, interesting molly in grand rapids michigan hey molly what are your thoughts
6: hi tom thanks for all you do pardon me i'm a little bit nervous and i do have some bronchitis i just have a little tidbit that sheds some light kind of on the whole Trump thing. Who Who is Trump in all of this? A bunch of family members were talking, and we said, oh, Trump is a Russian asset, a Russian asset for sure. Now, I have a son who is a major in the Army. He has been in intelligence all his life. He is a Russian linguist, and he is currently at a SCIF, that's S-C-I-F, which is, as you know, that a is our Yes, yeah. past top secret. And he said, no, not an asset. But I can't tell you more. Okay. And we were, <laughs> we were a left lot. <laughs> to, to speculate all over the place about blackmail, money laundering. Right. You know, he's... Rumored to be connected to the Russian mafia via Felix Sater and even right. Michael Cohen yep. and the debts to uh, the Russians and the Saudis, or just being a useful idiot. But at any rate, there's a, as Sarah Kenzior says, a transnational crime syndicate masquerading as a government. So I thought that kind of changed the way I have been discussing the whole who is Trump compared to Russia and Saudi Arabia right. and it does appear he's not an intentional asset.
2: Okay. Molly, thank you for the call. Fascinating stuff. Sharon in Huntington Beach, California. Hey Sharon, what's up?
7: Hi Tom. How are you doing? Good. What's uh, on your mind? You know, I think I think Putin not only owns Trump, but I think he owns a lot of other people and if not he, it's his oligarchs. Mm-hmm. And I mean, think of how many Republicans. Well, look at what happened in Kentucky.
2: Yeah, there's a reason our- why they're calling him Moscow Mitch.
7: Exactly. I don't think he's the only one. I think there are a lot of them. And I think Comrade Trump finally got his phone line direct to Putin. And I think he talks with him regularly, and, and basically he takes his marching orders from him.
2: You're talking and about he, the secure back-channel communication line that Jared Kushner was trying to put in between the yeah. White House and the Kremlin.
7: And didn't Prince try also? Prince, or I Eric think it was Prince. Prince. Yeah. yeah he, maybe. He I, in, I don't know specifically about that,
2: but I remember the Jared Kushner yeah. incident.
7: So I think, you know, you think of all the weird things that Trump comes up with out of thin air, and even his his staff and his cabinet are shocked by something new he comes up with. I think it all comes from Putin. Yeah. And Putin's goal is to disrupt the Allies, to disrupt the European Union, which means getting Britain out of there. Just a lot of disruption, I think, is handled through the oligarchs who have made contact with various people and in one way or another either gave them lots of money or gave them loans or sure. something
2: well they all have shared interests owned. i mean you know it's this they, is what you're seeing here really is unrestrained capitalism at its peak glory
7: and these internationally guys, somebody like mitch or whoever trump they get in too deep before they even know it and then they're owned yeah, they, yeah. they're owned it
2: may be and it so may be Sharon, yeah. your points are really well taken i want to try and get one more caller in here before i have to hit a break thank you for the call leslie in central square new york hey leslie well, the deal with Trump here, it has
3: to do with this whole thing. He's not going to obey anything anymore. He's actually a dictator right now. He's proved it. And the Democratic Party, especially in the House, will not go after him. It's as simple as that. The corporate Democrats will not go after him. they got an agreement with the Republican Party. You can see it over the years. No one will go after the other party and charge anyone, okay? Mm-hmm. Look at Obama. He
2: said he will not look back. Okay, after Bush. This is terrible stuff. Yeah, it was what, it's what Bill fucking, Clinton said about Reagan and Bush the Elder.
3: Yeah, same thing. This is what's going on with these two parties. Yeah.
2: And right now, I'm sorry about Nancy Pelosi, but she takes
3: more money from corporatists than the rest of them do. And they sit there, most, half of them some corporate Democrats will sit there, take money and have Democrats in their area. They don't even know if they're sitting there time after time voting Republican and just sitting there laughing and taking the
2: money. Mm-hmm. You know, not doing a thing. Yeah. You know, over and over and over again. Yeah, amazing stuff. Terrible. amazing stuff. Leslie, thank you for the call. Um, a lot, a lot of theories here today. A lot of speculation. We'll be right back. Stick around. Hey, we just put up a new rant for kind of members of our club i guess you know supporters of the tom Harbin program you can find the link and figure out how to get to it and all that kind of stuff over are at TomHartman.com, and this one is about how we may be missing one of the most important parts of the whole picture when we talk about brexit could cause a crash in great britain which could cause damage to the european economy which cause the world economy to shutter, which could cause a recession or even a depression here in the United States. That conversation is being had out in the open. But the conversation stepping off that that's not being had is how such things like Great depressions have caused wars. How the Great Depression of the 1930s led to World War II. The 1856 crash led to the Civil War. The 1770s led to the American Revolution. We need to have that conversation. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. I have a good friend who's a nurse in a plastic surgery center. Now they mostly do reconstructive stuff for people who've had surgery, you know, uh, mastectomies, things like that, or been in bad car accidents. But it really introduced me to how huge the plastic surgery industry is. You know, people trying to take under-eye puffiness, wrinkles, all that kind of stuff. It's incredible. And it's expensive, and there are dangers associated with it, not to mention the, the milder stuff, you know, people using hemorrhoid creams and tea bags, which don't, frankly, work. What does work, though, and works quickly and without things like surgery, is plexiderm. And I'm not talking about working in days or weeks. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under-eye bags and wrinkles from view in just minutes hear that in minutes the science behind plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up if you look older and tired because of crow's feet wrinkles or under eye bags you can look younger in just minutes with plexiderm see for yourself watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under-eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up, by the way, by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to triplexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's triplexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Or call 1-800-685-1292 and mention my name, Plexiderm. Louise loves it. I love it. It's great stuff. Check it out. Welcome back. Okay, this UFO story, I was going to get into it yesterday. I ran out of time. I think this is fascinating. The U.S. Navy has now verified, you recall, over the last couple of years, there was one uh, off the East Coast in 2015, two Navy pilots tracking an unidentified flying object. This was, you know, the video of this went viral. It got out and it went viral. And then there was another one, this was in 2004. And they called the object a tic-tac. It looked like a tic-tac. It was just a round, oval-shaped thing, and it descended from 60,000 feet, which is higher than an airplane can fly, down to 50 feet in a matter of seconds off the coast of California, and then stabilized. The pilot described a disturbance about the size of a football field in the water. And then in 2014, there was a U.S. Navy Super Hornet that almost collided with a UFO during a mission near Virginia Beach. And all of these are documented, and all of them have had people going, what? Well, the Navy just came out and confirmed that yes, in fact, these three incidents are UFOs. And the Navy said, this information, this footage should never have been made public. The spokesperson for the Naval Chief of Operations for Information Warfare, The spokesperson's name is Joseph Gradisher. said, and I quote, the Navy designates the objects contained in these videos as unidentified aerial phenomena. And that story has been confirmed by a couple of different sources. They're using the phrase UAP instead of UFO. So this raises the question, should we be trying to talk to these people? This was in Great Britain, and there was a science fair in Coventry. And Oxford University was polling the public on this. And they said, if we discover that there are UFOs, should we try to communicate with them? Should we invite them to hang out with us? Should we talk with them? And 39% of people said scientists should decide what to do next. 15% of people said the politicians should decide. 11% said we should have a planet-wide referendum on whether we talk to them. And a majority, over 50%, said, yeah, talk to the aliens. Ajana Ahuja, writing for the Financial Times. This is a story in the Financial Times. The headline is, Replying to Alien Contact Would Be Madness on a Galactic Scale. And John Ahuja says, this is madness on a galactic scale. An alien life form extending the tentacle of friendship is likely to be reaching out from a position of technological, if not intellectual, superiority. The history of explorers pinpointing distant lands is one of plunder and conquest. Parading our presence could unleash interplanetary pandemonium. And then points out, this is not a frivolous issue. These surveys are not frivolous. The SETI Institute in California, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is backed by NASA. They've been scanning for aliens since the 1980s. Billionaire tech investor Yuri Milner has put $100 million into Breakthrough Listen project. It is a 10-year-long project to find alien life forms through radio and visible light emissions. The Kepler Space Telescope, You know, We've found 2,600 exoplanets now. We found one just a week or three ago, K2-18b. It's only 110 light years away, and it's apparently got rain in its atmosphere, as in water. So what do you think? The Navy is saying, yeah, these are UFOs. We have no idea where they came from, what they are, but they're not ours. And anything that can go from 60,000 feet to 50 feet in a matter of seconds without exploding or burning up and then level off, off 50 feet off the Pacific Ocean and documented by the Navy. I'm of the opinion that the scientists who are freaking out about this are right, that we should not be thinking about this the way that European explorers thought about, oh, new lands, new people. We should be thinking about this the way Native Americans or you know Native New Zealanders or Native Australians thought about it, which is Who are those people coming here with an advanced technology? In this case, it was guns. Mick in Seattle. Hey, Mick, what's on your mind?
5: Oh, uh, your earlier comment about the UFO and the government uh, actually admitting the fact that they exist brings to mind the reason why we're here. I believe the aliens put us here because of our nature for war, and we're a penal colony.
2: Huh, interesting. Interesting. You know, I mean, banishment for most indigenous people, the ultimate punishment was banishment because typically, if you were banished from a tribe, you died in the wilderness. And, you know, indigenous communities don't have jails or prisons. Well, since
5: so you bring that up, that's one of the reasons why the Great Migration occurred 3,000 years ago in Central America to create Canyon de Chile
2: and the Pueblo buildings because they didn't believe in human sacrifice and warfare. Oh, that's interesting. So they left the Aztecs or the or the Mayans and fascinating. Mick, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for that. Grant in Minneapolis listening to AM nine fifty. Hey Grant, what's up?
0: Hi, Tom. Um, I'm really excited to call you. I've been listening to your show with my dad since I was like six or seven. Wow. So I'd like to talk about the nice um, to meet you, Grant. Nice to meet you as well. So I'd like to talk about the aliens for a moment and mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about first contact. Well, maybe not first contact but just sort of the process of what would happen as soon as we figure out that they're actually aliens throughout human history we've had tons and tons of instances of two groups meeting each other one group maybe being mm-hmm. significantly more technologically advanced than the other and then getting one group destroying the other or enslaving the other right. um, and maybe the most extreme there, example
2: maybe. of this is uh homo sapiens versus neanderthals
0: oh yeah that's Well, the Hills kind of went extinct because of um,
2: environmental conditions. Really, more we really don't know for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's I mean, there's there's a mix, but I think there's more than just that. But anyway, there's like one instance which I think we should probably model if this does happen, of one group actually just adapting to conditions of the people who were trying to colonize them. So back in the 1850s, America sent a navy out to Japan because we wanted to trade with them, and Japan had been closed off for...
2: Oh, this is Colonel Perry's black ships. Yeah. Yep.
0: And um, Yankara was like, okay, yeah, we can't beat these guys. So he was just like, okay, let's unify all Japan and then modernize it. Uh, in an event called the Meiji Restoration. Um, And I think that that's the sort of thing we should be modeling. Uh, They were able to build, like, a few thousand miles of railroad in, like, 20 years, which just for a nation which started with, like, basically zero technology compared to the West except for, like, fairly crude firearms. Mm -hmm. You know, that was very impressive. Now, I'm not sure aliens would necessarily let us have their technology, but, I mean assuming that maybe we could
2: reverse engineer it
0: yeah like kind of in um independence day i think
2: it is yeah
0: i've never seen that movie but i think that's what happened God, or, you i know, don't that's, recall seeing The but... new one i think they they made a second one right mm.
2: but that would least, require i mean in the Meiji era in japan you had a society that was highly homogenous not just the way people looked and family and all that you know all that kind of stuff but culturally you're talking, uh, Grant, about pulling together the entire planet, you know, an yeah. extraordinarily heterogeneous uh, collection of human beings. You know, I get your point, and I think it's a great strategy. It's, it'd be a stretch, but let's hope you're right. Grant, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, and, yeah. and, and nice to meet you. Thank you very much. We've been talking about if there are UFOs now that the Navy has said, yep, the, these three sightings since 2004, which all went viral with the videos, including one where this this thing shaped like a tic-tac came out of the sky from 60,000 feet down to 50 feet above the Pacific, and then, and, you know, nobody knows what can do that. The Navy is saying, yeah, these are UFOs. They've got a new phrase for it, uh, unidentified uh, aerial phenomena or something like that, uh, UPAs. But in the Financial Times, the papers, in the pages of the Financial Times, scientists are f- having this kind of food fight over whether we should reach out to intelligent life forms if we find them or whether we should be trying to avoid contact with them. I mean, do we want to end up their pets? Do we want to end up like the way the with them treating us the way we treat pigs and cows or at the very least the way that Europeans treated Native Americans? It could be a little concerning. Bill in Il- Naperville, Illinois. Hey, Bill, what's up? Yeah, I want to talk about that UFO. I've been following this a long time. And to me,
5: you know, the most likely scenario, whether that is extraterrestrial origin or man made, it has to be something remote control like a drone. And if you say, like, uh, how far we have come in the last few decades with remote control and drones, that would be the most uh, likely scenario, because um, hmm. living beings could never, I don't think there could be any technology possible that would let living beings survive that acceleration, deceleration that would be subjected on that ship. And, and if you think about the proof that we have, we have good proof of radar, sightings, photo, photographs of these uh, objects with mass and they're also picked up on radar but the one thing we don't have is we don't have anything confirming these living beings either entering or leaving the ships right. if they are ships right. and until we get there we it's a far leap to go from flying objects to aliens yeah endeavors. on the other hand
2: bill if if you know 150 years ago you had sat down with uh, you know some american scientists and said, uh, what do you think? Someday there'll be a little box so you can hold it in your hand and you can have a conversation where you actually see the other person, even though they're you know, 10,000 miles away in real time. But, but,
5: but again, you know, I think whatever it is, it's still subject to the laws of physics. And I can't, you know- well, That's what they, they would have said it, 200 well, years ago. No, that's, that's physically impossible. Yeah. So, so you would uh, again. Living beings could not survive that without with any technology. As far as, far as we know. <laughs>
2: yeah. No. Well, I, I get it. I
5: get. Well, I get. I get. I, I get, I, you. I'll get, I'll get. Yeah, I'll give you that. But again, uh, this um, uh, Asian scientist with the long gray hair, I forget his name. His uh-huh. last name starts with... The, he's at these conventions now, and his point, he, he that's the thing he keeps bringing up. He said, until we see DNA or a fingernail
2: or hair, that uh-huh. I am not convinced at all there's any living beings yeah. Well, that, the... that makes sense. I mean, you know, it's, it's like if there were if there actually were people on Mars um, when the Mars rover landed, they might have thought, oh, my God, it's aliens from Earth. And in fact, it was essentially a drone, like what you're saying. Bill, thanks for the call. The Navy has now confirmed that these three UFO sightings that we've seen since 2004 that were all from the military and all on tape are actually real and that they don't know what they are this thing the size of an airplane that was shaped like a tic-tac that came from 60,000 feet down to 50 feet above the Pacific right off the coast of California and then leveled off, still don't know what it was. So the question, you know, uh, there's a bunch of scientists who are actually debating right now, rather publicly, whether, and in fact, this made the pages of the Financial Times, whether we should allow an actual interaction with aliens. I think it's fascinating robbie in portland oregon hey robbie thanks for listening x-ray fm what's up
8: hey tom how are you doing today
2: good what do you think
8: i wanted to bring up that uap stuff my dad is ex-air force he worked at the cia um talking with him a lot about this subject over the past couple decades of my life because i've been really fascinated by the thought of aliens and extraterrestrials i don't think the u.s navy is being sincere and what they are telling us, I think to a large degree, when they said, oh, this shouldn't have been released, I feel what they're doing is they're helping out an effort for disclosure. Are you aware of uh, To The Stars Academy?
2: No, I'm not. To The
8: Stars Academy is actually one of the groups which really made those the Navy videos viral. It's uh, Tom DeLong. He started it. He's from a band called Blink-182. Basically, he's been the one that's been going around and organizing many ex-high Officials, ex-military individuals, generals, Air Force, Navy pilots, all sorts of ex-military members who are coming forward with this unidentified aerial phenomenon stories. And basically what they're coming to is our government, what you said in the Financial Times is exactly right. They're suppressing the technology that they have. The moment that our government is admitting that there are aircraft, spacecrafts, which have superior technology to the current military, that is where they are going to have to then start providing it. And they already are. They're called ARVs. There's many different replicas. You'll see Project Aurora. There's a spacecraft called TR-3B. It's by the Northrop Gunman Military Contractor Defense. Hmm. Uh, Basically, what we're going to see, and here's what's really cool about this, and and, and a lot of this is all controversial. People say there's no proof of the TR-3B, but there is. There's a lot of proof. The military... Publishing, they basically produced a whole thing about the. Well, you wonder we if this might be like the uh,
2: hypersonic uh, weapon that the Russians tested and and bragged about that you know they take it up to sixty thousand feet and drop it and it comes down as a as a wing basically and and flies down into you know really really fast. I mean that that's kind of what the Tic Tac did, right?
8: Well, and that's one thing that I'm kind of skeptical about is like I'm wondering if these are space you know government spacecrafts that right. you know just kind of got recorded or not. But what's going to happen from here? is when they start doing this disclosure, they're going to be basically bringing out that this information, uh, this technology exists. What they're going to have to do then is start selling it to us, which is on par for it. But anyway, I just wanted to bring up that that
2: freebie. (laughs) There's always somebody who wants to make a buck. Robbie, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. And yeah, good talking to you.
1: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.